This is Folklife Field Notes, a podcast between WMRA and Virginia Humanities, exploring living traditions in Virginia through recordings made by Pat Jarrett from the Virginia Folklife Program. I'm Chris Boros from WMRA. I'm here with Pat Jarrett. Pat, you used to be the interim director of Folklife, but you're not anymore. What happened? Well, you know, it's called interim for a reason, Chris. <laughs> and we have a new addition to the Folklife team. Her name is Katie Kloon. She is a very talented folklorist coming to us from North Carolina. She got her master's in folklore from UNC Chapel Hill and has done some amazing work all around the world, specifically with ties to Southeast Asia in Laos and the Laotian communities that have come to Western North Carolina. At the textile museum where I was working, I was introduced to Laos through an exhibition of contemporary and historic textiles. And I knew too that Hmong people live in Laos and they have um, a pretty well-known textile tradition around story claws, these beautiful applique narrative pieces. And so when I was moving to North Carolina for graduate school, I sort of headed there with the intention and hope to find a folklore master's thesis project that related to Laos so that I could do field work both in North Carolina and in Laos because I had this, you know, really exceptional, unique opportunity to spend the summer between graduate school years with my parents in Vientiane. You know, that both speaks to how I began to dig into Laotian culture in the U.S. South, but also kind of gives you a hint of why I became a folklorist. I was raised moving around internationally with my parents, and on the weekends we'd, you know, often go to a museum or take a day trip to see a separate part of the city or a different town, you know, a few hours away, and that was always experiencing culture through the people who practice it. I've been in the field with you on a number of interviews, and you really do have a gift of making people feel at ease when talking about these big issues. I think it's wonderful, and I I think that it comes across in how relaxed people feel in these interviews. Thank you, Pat. That means a lot to me. It's fun doing field work side by side. I'm I'm really glad we get along as well as we do. But to hear, you know, you've sat with me through now, I think just two formal sit down interviews. I appreciate you saying that. And I think part of it is technique and practice, but part of it is just the way I am. I essentially grew up as an outsider wherever I was because we moved so much. And I think that contributes to a certain degree of openness and comfort stepping into other people's worlds, you know, waiting to have them tell you what's going on as opposed to trying to make assumptions. I spent first through fourth grade in Jakarta, Indonesia, so I had this sort of really deep reverence and love for Southeast Asia, not to say that Laos is 
similar to Indonesia. Like they are very different, but in terms of being in that part of the world and tapping into a totally different kind of spirituality and way of being in the world that I could at least make some connections between the two. I think that's also why I pursued it. Do you think it's those impressionable years that made such an impact? I mean, is it because you were there at a young age? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I had a one of my classes in elementary school was like Indonesian language and culture. So I used to be able to speak a little bit of Bahasa Indonesia, which is the language there. And in that class, we learned about holidays and traditions and uh, the Ramayana, which is a, a Hindu epic, but it is played out as a folktale in Indonesian shadow puppet theater, which is Wayang Kulit. Um, there's also Wayang Golek, which is 3D wooden puppets. I always feel like there's a, a tie back to when we were young and what we do in the present day. And I'm always curious about what people's connections are to their past. Yeah, um, I have not been back to Indonesia as an adult, and I would really like to. And I know that when I land there and smell the air and am totally immersed in that language, that memories I haven't encountered since, you know, the mid-90s will come up for me. And I remember landing in Laos and stepping outside of the plane and being hit with like a similar smell and just feeling at ease and excited and at home. That smell is like both the heat, the humidity, the smell of cooking over an open flame, incense, because temples and spirituality and offerings are a part of everyday life in Laos. Let's go to North Carolina and your work with the Laotian communities there. Did you feel that same sense of connection to it when you were in these communities? Yes, and I attribute that to the incredible generosity, welcoming, and partnership the Papaiboon family really gave me. And I got connected with them, actually. I found a, a Hmong New Year's festival in Hickory, North Carolina, which is in the western part of the state. And I had actually gone back to the textile museum for a symposium on Southeast Asian textiles and uh, was talking to a volunteer there, and she connected me with this woman named Toon Papaiboon, who at the time was teaching at a community college in Morganton, but she had been really an activist for the Lao community when she was in California. For her... And her family, when they saw my interest and sensitivity towards raising awareness about their experience coming to the country and shedding light on the fact that it is really, you know, the U.S. military's fault that so many Lao and Hmong folks had to flee as refugees and resettle in the U.S. following the end of the Vietnam War, that... We sort of saw it as kind of a tripartite partnership. Me and the Papaiboon family and my my dad all engaged in this kind of cultural diplomacy work. And at this time, it was 2013, and I have to say there wasn't as much in the popular media, there wasn't as many stories about 
Southerners that were not black or white. So I think people were really excited to have the opportunity to get to know this other kind of Southern experience. But after Tune and I walked around this festival, you know, I was looking, I sort of got the impression that it would be hard to do research on Hmong textiles, but Tune invited me to her sister's restaurant after the festival, and from the minute I, I walked in the door, I knew it was someplace special. The dining room is like, if you walk in the first time, you feel like you're in the middle of, I would say, overseas somewhere. Maybe it could be in Thai or Lao, pretty much like a uh, Lao and Thai surrounding. And then if, if you walk in here, you don't have to say, ah, she's from Laos, you know. You could tell by the dining area because I decorated as a pretty much Laos. I immediately knew there was something special, and I could tell that, you know, the way that Dara decorated the restaurant and displayed sort of Laotian cultural objects on the walls, photos of the monuments, and made people feel really welcome and taught them a little bit about where she was from. That felt really special to me. And so when the family invited me to a New Year's celebration later that winter, I said, yes, absolutely. And that was at Dara's home. And I saw you know, the table laid out with all these beautiful home-cooked foods and a whole pig that they had bought at a barbecue shop in Charlotte. I just sort of kept coming back and realized that I had very luckily begun a relationship with a family who was at the center of this community in Morganton, North Carolina, so a little bit further west than Hickory. And Morganton is a town of about 16,000 in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. So they're really a fairly small community. What's interesting to me is the connection to place. Something Katie said about her interviews and her work in Western North Carolina is that the Laotian people who moved there moved there because it felt like Lao the landscape, the green hills. And I've heard the same thing about Scots-Irish who came to the valley. This felt like home. And to me, that resonated. And that was a cool part of our conversation. So Toon settled in California. Dara and her husband, Daniel, actually came to Bridgeport, Connecticut first. And that's where Toon's parents also entered the U.S. several years after Toon. And so... Dara and Daniel took a road trip south to decide where they might live. They thought they would end up in Florida, but in driving through North Carolina, as they told it, they felt a feeling of home in seeing the rural green hills because Laos is a, a green mountainous country. The economy is mostly agricultural. And they moved to Morganton and eventually all but one sister reunited there and so I think the act of making Morganton their home was particularly meaningful and joyful for this family. Her dad, Kamsis Lungkwat, helped establish the Buddhist temple, even working with Toon to navigate the customs nightmare of importing a 10-foot-tall Buddha statue <laughs> to wow. be in the, in the temple altar. 
So I want to introduce everybody to the Laos because everybody say, hey, you Chinese, you know, the, the Laos never exists. So that's why I become, say, okay, I'm going to open the restaurant or grocery store one day and I'm going to tell them I am not Chinese, I am Laos. And so the, my thesis work with them really became sharing how the family expressed and strengthened their cultural identity through traditional food ways in the context of the restaurant, Asian Fusion Kitchen, their home and family and community gatherings they'd host there, and then through the temple. So I made field recordings in all those spaces. I went to worship ceremonies at the temple, both on and off sort of big holidays. I went to two New Year's celebrations called New, Lao New Year is called Pimai, and I, I gave you some audio of the, the festivities on the grounds of Wat Lao Sayafum. Well, I'll also say that, you know, when I graduated, of course I got my thesis approved and a, a diploma, but Mimi, Dara's sister-in-law, also gave me a key to their home. So wow. I hold that in as much a symbol of my successful <laughs> time in graduate school as the diploma. Years later, when Toon's father passed, I was invited to write his obituary because I had done that interview with him. And you'll have a chance to meet the family at my wedding because they, they will be invited. They are my Lao family. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And it, it also speaks to this field that we're in. Folk life encourages these deep relationships I've seen where... You know, other fields, you know, it's discouraged. But in folk life, there's certainly there are professional boundaries. But um, we end up making these very deep connections with individuals, and it carries on. And it's 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 more than work. Absolutely, and it's kind of, I would say, part of the equation when you're working with a family over the course of more than a year. So I feel I feel lucky, and I also acknowledge that we have to be aware that when we interview someone, we're entering into relationship with them and life is long. And as folklorists, we gather a lot of relationships and we have to you know, be conscious of what that means and to know there are different levels. She received an Archie Green Fellowship. It's a research award from the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress to conduct field work and interviews about repair people and the culture behind repair work in the country. This is everything from tire repair hmm. to plaster wall repair. And so there has to be specific knowledge to repair these kinds of things. And Archie Green, the award is specifically geared towards occupational culture in the folk life field. So that's cultures around professions. In uh, 2019, a good friend of mine in Durham, Julia Gartrell, she's a sculptor, we decided to team up and received a fellowship from the American Folklife Center Library of Congress and completed interviews with 22 repair professionals across the state of North Carolina. And we talked to everyone from, you know, a furniture restoration shop owner to someone who had a historic window restoration business to 
silversmiths and ceramic restorers to a luthier to a couple diesel engine mechanics. Um, we really tried to make it a wide array of kind of niche repair professionals and got to dig around in a lot of really cool workshops as a result. Oh, that's really cool. So you mentioned the uh, window repairman. He had something really interesting to say about plumbers. There's 28,000 plumbers out there. There's one of me, so I should be worth about at least about the same as plumbers. Yeah, so Dave Hoggard owns Double Hung Window. He kind of just stumbled into specializing in essentially removing and restoring and then putting back in historic windows. And he shared very succinctly the kind of pride you can feel when you are an expert specialist in such a niche area that arguably no one else nearby can do what you do. There's a couple of sayings in, in our industry that they call them replacement windows because you have to keep replacing them. They last 15 years, you throw them away, start again. These will go two, three, four hundred years if you keep them going. So what was his shop like? Oh, it was so cool. When we visited, they actually had all of the windows and most of the columns and banisters from Cone Manor, a historic estate along the Blue Ridge Parkway, in their shop. And now those windows and decorative pieces of wood are all restored and back on the manor. So that was incredible. And he had words to say about the first time he removed windows from the house. He didn't. He hadn't developed his system of numbering and coding so that the windows would go back to the same holes oh. in the wall. So of course, you know, doing the, the scale of a job of Cone Manor, he had it all very much down to a succinct system. Then it was fun to hear from the people who worked in his shop how they never thought they would get into, you know, a window restoration career, but how deeply they loved working with the materials. You know, they called the windows the eyes of a house. It was two women, Lori and Holly, I interviewed in in the shop, and each of them spoke about how meaningful it was to them to steward carefully the piece of glass that someone had looked out of into the world for hundreds of years. So it was really fun to take these deep dives into different areas that I might not encounter again. And I have to say it was also incredibly, uh, like it made me jealous. (laughs) I think I have some kind of, I don't know, post-folklore career in handwork and potentially even in repair because the amount of job satisfaction these professionals get from taking something that is broken, using their skills to restoring it back to its working order, and often their handiwork is invisible, but then returning it to the the person, the customer, the homeowner, and seeing that joy, you know, that just is a world away from managing the never-ending river of emails in your inbox. And we had a chance to interview a violin repairer who is in our current apprenticeship class. If you do something with your, your hands and your mind together, it's a good antidote for the misery of the world. You get lost in what you do. And my wife also has a, a wonderful hobby. She knits these sweaters for the needy, and she, she's done up to 100 a year. Her name is Phyllis. The concept of invisible work, because I don't think about my windows at all unless they're broken. Right. It's almost thankless, but it's necessary. Yeah, and a lot of these folks 
will leave a small trace of their hand so that they contribute their mark to kind of the history of the object or the building. Oh, wow, like a maker's mark. Yeah, that's not visible necessarily unless, you know, it's another person down the road. To hear him talk with disdain about sheetrock was enjoyable. (laughs) I was struck by this bit of tape you shared with me from Andy Witted, a third-generation plasterer from uh, Hillsborough, North Carolina. Back then, they would have to make those walls. You had to scratch them, and then you screed them. But now, uh, repair stuff, like they got a board now. It's called blue board that you just put up. It's just like sheetrock, and you just plaster over it. Yeah, that way you don't, you just put a thin coat. You don't, and the wall make already made out of the board. But back then, they was we had to mud that, scratch it, and screed, and make those walls. And then it took so long, because once you put so much mud, the house had to dry out a little bit before they come back and put that smooth lime coat. That was the process. That's so interesting. And also, his knowledge is so deep that it's... I, I could barely follow the terminology he was using when he was talking about plaster repair. Yeah, and I, I shared that clip because I really love how it succinctly demonstrates how these skilled trades are each world's unto their own with their own you know, vocabulary and methods and tips and tricks and specialties that people who aren't in the trade would have no reason to encounter or appreciate. Now that you're here, now that you're kind of getting your stride, what do you see going forward for the Virginia Folklife Program? What are you excited about? What are we in for? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited about furthering this emphasis on documentation that has always been a part of the program, you know, especially since you you came on board 10 years ago, you transformed the quality of the, the images and video and audio that the program can produce. And I, I feel like, you know, in the end, we're here to serve serve the artists, serve the individuals we interview, serve the people who are frankly brave enough to share, you know, why they do what they do and kind of make them selves and their experiences available to others. And one of the primary ways we can serve them is, one, making their voice part of the historical record, but two, also giving them tools that can further their own careers and professional development. Chris, I'm really excited to work with her. I think she has a clear vision of what the program should be moving forward. And it's kind of interesting. The field of public folklore at the state level is still relatively young. The initiative was put forth by the National Endowment for the Arts to fund state folklife programs. So we're seeing the second or third generation of folklorists at these state appointments. If you want to meet Katie, she's going to be at the Richmond Folk Festival in the Virginia Folklife area this year, which is going to be devoted to mainly luthiers. We're bringing in Dina Jennings, who's a gourd banjo maker. We're bringing in Mark Klein, who does the roadside attractions all up and down the valley. You've probably been to Dinosaur Kingdom too, down to Natural Bridge. He's responsible for that. He's going to be there with his apprentice. Uh, we're, we're honoring the 20th Virginia Folklife Apprenticeship class at this Richmond Folk Festival, and it's free and open to the public, and it's gonna be wonderful. October 7th, 8th, and 9th, Richmond, Virginia. 
Katie, thanks so much for your time. And um, I guess I'll see you in the office. <laughs> <laughs> see you around, Pat.